Their names were Uncle George and Aunt Marion. I should say they were my great Uncle George and my great Aunt Marion. And all of you, all of us have relatives that we kind of know a little bit about, that maybe we see at weddings or funerals or we hear their names and we know them just enough to know that they're out there, but that's about it. That was the case with me and my great aunt Marion and great uncle George. We visited them a couple of times when I was a kid. They lived on a farm in a little town in western Michigan. I'm not even sure where it was. I think it was near Pentwater. And like I said, they were sort of on the periphery of my childhood memories, but I vaguely knew that my mother had spent summers there as a child with her aunt and uncle. And though our visits to the farm were few, I remember a couple of things about their place. I remember that they lived on a trailer on the property, which as a nine-year-old kid or whatever seemed a bit odd to me, but there it was. I also remember that their screen door was broken and desperately needed fixing. And I also remember that their place was essentially a junkyard of rusted, mysterious agricultural equipment scattered about the property with an assortment of old, rusted-out cars and trucks and little piles of rubbish and debris everywhere. My mother described it to me like this. She says, if you stood in their doorstep looking out of their front door into the yard and if you took a spatula or maybe a ladle and you flipped it out into the yard, there it would land and though stars might deviate in their courses and new species would evolve on this earth, that item would never move. In fact, <laughs> years would go by and it would sprout, it would seem, um, almost as if it were a seed and a little pile of rubbish would spring up around it waiting until the next time you threw something out the door. That's where the term seed clutter comes from in our household, by the way. But, and I can remember their eccentricities with a smile, but there was more to the story. And you won't thank me when you hear it, I don't think. They had several children, among them an alcoholic adult son who one day left home and never returned. Every once in a while, they would get a letter from him with a return address that would vary with every time they got such a letter, saying if you would send money, that would be fine, and they did. But one day, the letters stopped coming, and it was as if, let's call him Donnie. I don't know his real name. It was almost as if Donnie had dropped off the planet, leaving an aching, ever-present longing a longing to know what had become of their son. And it was a longing that eventually morphed into numbness. And what we're going to see today, by the way, in the little book of Malachi, is that a longing can morph into numbness, but it can morph into a lot worse things than that. But that longing would surely bubble to the surface every time they went to the mailbox and at every Thanksgiving dinner. 
even if they're preparing a room for their much-loved niece who would come to visit every summer. They lived in this twilight world of ache, somewhere between despair and fear and hope and guilt, longing, aching for a ray of light. Their ache was never resolved, and they went to their graves presuming that their son had died, but never knowing for sure. And as I've thought about that, I've become a bit more charitable in my assessment of their personal lifestyle and habits. Because when you live in a twilight world, punctuated by a dull ache that never goes away, who has the heart to clean house or tidy up? Now, this is an unsatisfying story, yes? The reason, of course, is that we long for resolution. doesn't have to be a Dickens story where the last 150 pages are spent wrapping up every loose detail with a bow, right? doesn't have to have a happily ever after ending even. But wow, to never know, to never hear where your lost son wound up or whether he's alive or dead is a story that I don't like to contemplate for very long. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Walker. You have injected a healthy dose of buzzkill into our holiday festivities. But I share this sad story for a couple of reasons. The main reason is to illustrate by example that longing is not always the same as anticipating. Can you get the difference? We anticipate birthday parties. We anticipate wedding dates. We anticipate birth dates of our children and grandchildren. Brothers and sisters, in the season of Advent, we join together with great anticipation for something, as Pastor Kip reminded us a few weeks ago, and Nick mentioned last week, anticipation for something that has already happened, or so it might seem. But the second reason that I burden you with the story is that although hopefully, hopefully, this is not our story of any of us in this room, yet for some of us here, I'm confident that it may hit a nerve somehow and feel like its address is right down the street from where you live. And for those of you who struggle a little bit with the idea of Advent at all, who are suspicious because it sounds so liturgical somehow, let me define it for you in terms that have been helpful to me. Advent is a season of the liturgical year observed in most Christian denominations as a time of expectant waiting and preparation for both the celebration of the nativity of Christ at Christmas and the return of Christ at the second coming. It is the season of the church year, the first season of the church year, leading up to Christmas and including the four preceding Sundays. And I had to confess to the children this morning in children's music time that I couldn't really remember whether this was the second or the third week. Uh, But I was told, and I trust my sources, that this is in fact the third week. And based on the candles, I think I'm right. Thus, the season of Advent in the Christian calendar anticipates the coming of Christ from three different perspectives. The physical nativity in Bethlehem, the reception of Christ in the heart of the believer, and the eschatological second coming. So Advent sets the context 
for the anticipation of the incarnation that we call Christmas. And these four weeks are not just punctuated by anticipation, they're steeped in it. There is a now but not yet quality to the season, and so we see anticipation coupled with a growing, discernible longing and ache for the rest of the story. And I want to talk to you about Malachi. We're going to be reading from chapter 3 and chapter 4, but I feel like I need to set up the context for you first. This is the final word in the Old Testament, the last boxcar on the train. We don't know much about the author except that his name was Malachi, and even that it seems like we don't know for, for sure, for sure, because it could be that the word means messenger. So the word may be a descriptor rather than a proper name, but either way, he appears to be a rough contemporary to Ezra and Nehemiah, serving as a prophet to the newly reestablished remnant of Judah in the post-exilic world, a world where the nation of Judah is quite small, not much bigger than DuPage County by my reading of a map, but it was a frail vassal state to political powers that controlled their fate, but it's a bit of an outlier from other prophetic voices. The oracle that he proclaims is not a unilateral message from God to a stubborn people. It is instead an almost Job-like, Socratic, and surely sarcastic rebuke of the people of Judah presented in the form of a question and answer session before the very God that they profess longing for and loyalty to. It actually reads like a courtroom drama where the infidelities of this nation are submitted as evidence by a methodical prosecutor. Here are just some of the charges. Defiance, arrogance, cheating, corruption, infidelity to their marriage partners, idolatry, calling evil good and good evil. And all of these build upon each other to form an ironclad indictment. And you might think that their response would be falling on their knees in repentance, but it's not. To each accusation from God through the mouth of the prophet, they respond hypothetically with a question of their own, and by this means the conditions of their hearts are revealed. And each question that they ask is preceded by this statement from the prophet, but you say. I'm going to read verse 1 just to give you a, an idea. Malachi 1.1 the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And now I should be seeing the first slide. He goes on. But you say, how have we despised your name? Good job, Sam. How have we polluted you? And then, get this one, when confronted with yet another of their self-righteous characteristics, they say, what a weariness is this. And I love the author's note, and you snort at it. Near as I can tell, a snort is the same thing as an audio eye roll. 
That characterizes this people. And finally, chapter 2, verse 17. How, how have we wearied him? Goes on. But you say, where is the God of justice? And when accused of leaving the Lord, their response, how shall we return to you? How have we robbed you? How have we spoken against you? And I love this one. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Do you hear the dripping cynicism and bitterness of the last question? Do you notice how they refer to their God in the third person at this point? All of the other ones are referring to the God in the second person. But here it's the third person. And it reminds me of when our children were small, our three older girls were probably, I don't know, five and six and six, something like that. And they were sharing a room, and I came in late at night after they had gone to bed and lights were out to scold them for something really important, I'm sure. And after I got done with my little scolding lecture, I left the room. But as I left, I heard a voice in a stage whisper say, I don't like him. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> wow. But did you hear the third person nature of that? There is something dismissive and twisting of the knife when you refer to someone in the third person as if they don't warrant the recognition of being referred to in the second person. And yet even here, in the midst of a stunning and seemingly final rebuke and word of judgment, we are presented with words of force and determination that contain a glimmer, at least, of future rescue and redemption, long in the planning and certain in its execution. So I'm going to read for us now chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And it's funny when I, as I read that, I so associate it with prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament as part of the, the story of Jesus' birth that I just kind of assume that it's good news. It's even hopeful news. Like it's a, at least a promise of good news. And yet, when you break it down, it begins to dawn on us that it ain't necessarily so. When I was a kid, I occasionally heard words like these. You know, you kids have been little monsters this afternoon, but don't forget that your father comes in on the 603. And yet, we get to chapter 4, 2 through 6, and we get a little bit, a little bit brighter of an ember of hope. You got this in? There you go. But for you who fear my name, verse 2, chapter 4, 
The sun, that's S-U-N, by the way, of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The imagery is stunning here, especially in the context of the bitter, single-minded self-righteousness and rejection by the people to whom this prophecy is written. This final word written about 400 years before its fulfillment is a clear window into the plan of God percolating for centuries for this irritable and hardened and yet much-loved people. Consider the, the various pieces of the message of these two passages. First, a messenger will be sent. The way of the Lord will be prepared. He will suddenly enter his temple. For those who fear his name, the son of righteousness will, will rise with healing in his wings. You will leap like cattle from the stall. You will have victory over your enemies. Behold, Elijah is coming. The great and mighty day of the Lord is coming. <coughs> There will be wholeness in this fractured land. Hearts will be turned toward one another. Wow. Sign us up, right? <coughs> Can you understand the longing and the anticipation as it grows across 400 years? That's about 15 generations, folks. Can we, like Simeon and Anna, taste that great day coming? And yet, there's an edge to it, isn't there? The final... Uh, verse, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This feels a little bit to me like if you had wrapped up a brand new Stingray Schwinn bicycle for your kid with the streamers coming out of the hand grips and a basket on the front and they, they rip open the wrapping paper and they notice a little card at the bottom which is a bill for past due rent. Right? It feels incongruous somehow, doesn't it? It's possible to read this passage as if it were a warning, as if the real message is, get your act together, folks, or these glorious promises will turn to ashes in your hands. Well, let's pause on that one for just a moment. This people has demonstrated over and over again for a thousand years plus that they do not have the capacity to follow even their preciously prized moral compass. This is less of a warning than it is a statement of plain and simple reality. Were not Elijah to come as a puzzle piece to a great and stunningly beautiful redemption, the only recourse would be the unredeemable and utter destruction of this nation, this people who had been and would continue to be relentlessly loved by God nonetheless. And that same message is actually um, pretty consistent throughout the Old Testament. If you look at this one, uh, Amos 5.18. This is one you won't hear on Christmas Eve very often. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Wow. So which is it? It's as though we have two diverging paths to walk. One is light abounding and the other is just de descending oppressive darkness. So which do we anticipate? The juxtaposition is probably nowhere made more clear, at least to me, than in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9. So Isaiah uh, 8, starting in verse 20, goes like this. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And chapter 9 begins with the all-potent all word, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Continuing in verse 3 and 4, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And of course, this passage from Isaiah 9 rings with great resonance for us because it's quoted in Matthew 4 at the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry when he moved from Nazareth and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. Brothers and sisters, in this season of Advent, we herald the coming of that light, do we not? So what about this promise of an Elijah who is to come? The Jews set an empty table, an empty chair at the table at Passover as an emblem for their longing for the herald of Messiah to come. It is their belief that Messiah will come unsuspected upon some glorious Sabbath day. And here are the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 11 through 16. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And just as the picture begins to clarify, the words of John the Baptist himself add yet another layer of ambiguity from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet from chapter 40 in Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So which is it? Is he Elijah or is he not? When John proclaims that he's not Elijah, he's actually making a necessary and corrective statement. Contrary to popular suspicion, John is telling his interrogators that his identity as the messenger is not based on a shared DNA with the prophet, nor is he some sort of magical, sensational reincarnation. Jesus' words, if you can accept it, are key. His identity as Elijah is not rooted in flesh, in blood and bone, but in his ordained role as the herald of the one who is to come the messenger, and it's a role that he has fulfilled faithfully even from the womb. Do you remember Elizabeth's words to Mary in uh, Luke chapter 1? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, Elizabeth says, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. As an unborn child, he was the herald and messenger prophesied in Malachi 3. And that's something worth pondering for a while. And that phrase, if you can accept it, in the passage that I read from Matthew 11, gets at the heart of one of the takeaways of this message, which we will come back to as we conclude. But we're not there yet. How many of you in this room <clears throat> were alive in 1987? It struck me that if you are less than 35 years old or so, this was before you were born. And that's, that just seems crazy to me. But in 1987, in December, the number one popular song on the pop charts was sung by a woman named Belinda Carlisle. And the name of the tune was, anybody know it? Heaven is a place on earth. One of the verses, brilliant, goes like this. Baby, do you know what that's worth? Heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven that love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Heaven is a place on earth. What do you think? Have you found it to be so, brothers and sisters? I'm reminded of uh, when I was engaged, this is off script, so Sam, just relax. <laughs> Sitting around a dinner table, one of my siblings, in a moment of rare spiritual discernment, said, don't you just long for Jesus to come back? And in a rare moment of utter honesty, I said, well, I sure hope he waits till after we get married. <laughs> but, uh, folks, I'll if you're, under, if you're operating under any illusions, heaven isn't a place on earth. My Uncle George and Aunt Marion did not find it so. 
And the song was actually, it's been adopted as a title by a variety of TV shows and movies, and recently by a book uh, by an author named Adrian Shirk, subtitled, Searching for an American Utopia. The word utopia was cranked into existence by the pen of Thomas More in the 1600s, and ironically comes from the Greek word meaning no place, or so I am told. The U.S. has been, in the words of the author, quote, a ferocious and focused laboratory of utopian experimentation since the beginning. And currently it is estimated that there are no fewer than 1,200 utopian communities in the U.S. with approximately 100,000 members. The search for utopia for heaven on earth is a search that's pursued all the time, every day, by those who are anticipating the wrong thing. From the Shakers to the Harmonists, the Oneida community, the Amana colonies, Robert Owen's New Harmony, the early Mormons, and more recently, communities with names like New Day or Bronx Co-op City, to my personal favorite, Father Divine's International Peace Mission Movement, to the equally intrig intriguing Megiddo Steamship Ministry, and many, many more. They all had a few common characteristics that I find interesting. They mostly all rely on the book of Acts chapter 2 as the economic pole star that drives their economy. They also all tended to be white, youngish, and generally Protestant in their roots and heritage. But there's one particular thing that they all universally have had in common. Can you guess? They all failed, every single one. Every single time. And the few that have seemingly survived has, have simply morphed into institutional clones of the culture from which they were seeking to escape. Think, uh, think of the Mormons, for example. The point is this, and it's simple. Heaven is not a place on earth. Our attempts to build utopia fail and fail and fail again. The reality of our longings and our helplessness and our pride and our sin and our anger and our cluelessness ensure that that will always be the case. Our salvation, should it come at all, must come from somewhere out of this world. But folks, in that wasteland of shattered dreams lies our only and our best hope. And that leads me to the first of four takeaways this morning. <clears throat> we have been found. Can I get a praise the Lord? We have not by our own efforts or our intrinsic worth somehow lured the Messiah down to earth. It's not like the Messiah had been pacing the floor in heaven, waiting endlessly for men and women to raise themselves up by their moral bootstraps to a higher plane of sufficient worthiness to make heaven a place on earth. That's a trap that has ever ensnared the world. And many years ago, I read a great book uh, titled The Source by James Michener. would highly recommend it. But you'll need more than an afternoon on a Sunday. There was a scene in the book where the Jewish rabbis in a small Palestinian town of Safed hoped and prayed that the Messiah would come walking over those Galilean hills, perhaps this very Sabbath. Because of that ever-dashed hope, the day after Shabbat would be a day of inconsolable ache. Here's how Michener described it. This dawn, Zaki looks at no one and he prays alone, as do the rest of us. 
And then, when the day was well broken and the sun is upon us, the rabbis of Safed meet glumly on street corners and try to decide what went wrong last week. If we have been truly God's men throughout this entire week, Rabbi Yom Tov complains, the Messiah would surely have come. What did we do wrong? And the rabbis discuss the errors of the past, the faults of Jews who keep barring the Messiah from his holy land. To preach with new dedication his simple formula, more charity, more love, more submission to God's Torah. And so as each new week begins, the Jews of Safed again try to live such devout lives that through their example, the Messiah will be lured down to earth. For as Rabbi Zaki never tires of reminding us, it is written in the Talmud that if a single community repents, the world will be saved. I don't know about you all, but I can praise the Lord this morning that the security of our anticipation does not rest in our good works, in our worthiness or our piety. It rests ultimately on the utterly determined will of God to save his people. It's a determination that's attested to by his word, by the testimony of the world around us, and strangely, even and especially by the deep, unresolved longings and pain of our tired and troubled hearts. And so, in the midst even of unresolved pain, we find our true place of peace in this season of so many contrasts by pausing to thank our Heavenly Father and marvel at the babe in the manger who would provide our rescue and as we do, we might begin to understand that there is probably no better or more important question in the universe than this. Who is he in yonder stall? Second takeaway is a question, actually. Will he find faith on earth? So many of our deepest aches and trials are unresolved. We ache for what ought to be. We lament that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not asked in this Advent season to deny the ache in our hearts or pretend that our longings matter not. We will come to understand that the suffering that we taste is actually strangely connected to the anticipation that we share. What we are asked to do is to come with our pain and sorrow, but come with an open hand. That takes incredible faith to do that. And then in the other hand, we have the anticipation for, for the joy that is on its way to being delivered, right? But the two are connected. George MacDonald would describe it as a gossamer thread, difficult to see, but important to grasp. It's a thread that may lead us to countries we never intended to visit and that we never thought we'd see, but will faithfully in the end lead us safely home. The path of Advent helps us to see that thread and grasp it tightly. And by the way, look no farther than the main characters in the story of the Christmas, Christmas uh, story. Um, Walk through characters one by one and you will see the burden that they had to carry. And I'm especially struck by Simeon who says, Lord, you can dismiss your servant that he may depart in peace. But he also says to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul as well. 
So do we have the faith to believe that even our deepest ache will be made right in God's timing? That's a tough question, folks. That timing that was made manifest in this world at long last, on that morning a long time ago now when a weary woman and a worried man came to a barn or a cave, making their way slowly down the streets of Bethlehem. So the third takeaway is a simple one, really. What we anticipate, we anticipate together as one. The promises of the Old Testament about Messiah are for the people of God, and the longing ache that you may carry is shared by your brothers and sisters here. And we bear the ache of that together for as long as it must be born. And if you buckle, we are there walking side by side. And because of that shared longing of the heart, it could be that our anticipation for what has come to be and for what is still yet to come will grow in depth and layers year by year. And finally, last takeaway, and this, I believe, is the cue for the choir to do whatever it is the choir needs to do. Our last takeaway is this. All is prepared. It only remains that you should be willing. I know that the syntax of that sentence feels kind of awkward to us, but it probably felt a little more comfortable to the guy who came up with the sentence 400 years ago in a commentary about Jesus' phrase, if you can accept it. Our anticipation for the coming of the Messiah and the return of Christ at his second coming and for the dawn of salvation in the heart of the believer hinges on a pivotal phrase, and we read it earlier, if you can accept it. And that is the question for us on this third Sunday of Advent. All is prepared. It only remains that you should be willing. There's a catch, of course, and it's as simple as it is frightening. It's going to take a miracle, folks. The quickening of a cold and dead heart. True confession, that's beyond my capacity. Okay? I can't make it happen, and neither can you. But it's not beyond the capacity of our God and Savior who according to his word will indeed turn the hearts of his children toward their heavenly father. And if that question is one that you've never been able to answer with joy or conviction, come and talk to me afterward. I don't bite. It's a pretty simple matter of two paths, actually. When the dawn of our salvation comes, it will bring joy and peace, or it will bring judgment and disabling fear and unspeakable regret. Our prayer is that each of us here today in this room will surrender to this son of righteousness and really and truly, finally, and for the first time, rest in peace. And I was also, oh, and now as the musicians and the elders who are going to serve communion come to the front, I will pray for us. Father, what we anticipate is the outworking of the determined will of a Savior who will save his children. And Father, the emblem of that, the security, the earnest money for it, is met in part by our sharing of the Lord's Supper together. Father, for every story here in this room and on the stream that has an unresolved ending, Father, I pray that those could be held with open hands and with a growing confidence 
at every wrong made right because of that marvelous plan of salvation that began so long ago. Help us to watch and wait, believe whatever and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.